0: Morning, we get to see the conclusion, that's what I titled it, of Samson's life. Uh, and it's typically best to see things to the close, uh, to get the full picture, and then uh, learn the ultimate lessons or draw your final conclusions. And the story of Samson does close out in the next two chapters. Obviously, a lot of material is given to Samson uh, in the book of Judges. And what we watch is how God accomplishes his purpose, God's purpose, but we also see uh, the sad fruit of a life that is mighty in strength, yet weak spiritually. And we begin seeing those conclusions and how God still orchestrated his plan and what I like to call the fallout. Chapter 15 is the fallout from what took place at the end of 14. Because if you remember in chapter 14, Samson was married, but his wife was coerced by 30 designated companions and by coerced, threatened to be killed, burned, Uh, and her family burned, and so she's threatened there, and so she gets an answer to a riddle and shares that answer with the companions, and then Samson goes off, and his first feat against the Philistines, he goes to the town, or really the city of Eshkelon, he kills 30 men, he gets their garments, he pays his debt, and then he leaves his wife in anger and goes back home. Chapter 15 picks the narrative back up, with Samson coming now to reconnect with his bride. And he was married to her, uh, which which is going to ignite a chain of events that will perfectly accomplish God's design. And it all begins uh, with a lost bride. So if you're in Judges chapter 15, we'll look at verse 1 through 8. It says this, "...but it came to pass within a while." In other words, within a certain period of time, within a few months, really." After, in the time of weed harvest, that Samson visited his wife with a kid, with a goat, and he said, I will go in to my wife into the chamber. But her father would not suffer him to go in. And her father said, I verily thought that thou hadst utterly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to thy companion. Remember, that companion would have been one of the 30 designated guys a Philistine from the town of Timnah. Is not, the father says, her younger sister... Fairer than she. Take her, I pray thee, instead of her. And Samson said concerning them, Now shall I be more blameless than the Philistines, though I do them a displeasure. And Samson went and caught three hundred foxes and took firebrands and turned tail to tail and put a firebrand in the midst between two tails. And when he had set the brands on fire, he let them go into the standing corn. Of the Philistines and burn up both the shocks and also the standing corn with the vineyards and olives. Then the Philistines said, Who hath done this? And they answered, Samson, the son in law of the Timnite, because he had taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burnt her and her father with fire. And Samson said unto them, Though ye have done this, yet will I be avenged of you. And after that, I will cease. And he won't cease because God is going to orchestrate that he keeps fighting them. And he smote them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. And he went down and dwelt in the top of the rock Itam. And this is an interesting unfolding of events. I call it a tragic comedy almost. It's, it's almost like uh, a, a, a bumbling comedy where one thing happens, would start something else happening, and everything just kind of collapses like a house of cards. And there's woven into this a sense of poetic justice. Uh, Samson comes bearing a gift. He's not trying to reconcile with his wife. This is exactly the situation or arrangement he had set up. This marriage was a visiting husband arrangement. She was to remain with her family, he is to remain in his home, and he's going to be a visiting husband. We talked a little bit about that last. Weak, how that whole system breaks God's law. It breaks God's plan, which is for a husband to leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. And so we see a broken family from the start. So he's coming to do what a visiting husband should do. And he finds when he shows up, when he finds he's at his father-in-law's home, that his wife is no longer his. That he is his father-in-law has given away his bride, and then in a almost kind of crass way. He says, why don't you take the younger sister? She's much prettier anyway. Samson, of course, is upset. He feels justified in taking retaliation against them, and really his retaliation, if you read it, is not a a fiery anger that burns off of him, because his retaliation now encompasses the whole community, if he was to retaliate against his father-in-law, he would have killed his father-in-law right there and burst into the chambers of his wife. Instead, he says, hey, I'm going to be justified in bringing punishment on the Philistines. I'm going to repay this community for what's taken place. And there is some validity to that because the community has played their part in the treachery of the riddle, though she capitulated to that. She, she didn't go to Samson and say, hey, they're threatening to kill me. Uh, what do we do about this? Instead, she came to her own conclusions and she... Cheated Samson of a victory, and then these these guys cheated him from the community. Remember, he comes to town. Thirty guys are picked from that community, Philistines, to be his companions, and so it all begins with his idea uh, to have the crops burned. So Samson captures three hundred foxes, and that translation in Hebrew uh, it, it could be foxes. It, it's most likely was jackals, which would have roamed in packs there in Israel, and he ties their tails together. And it sounds like he's being cruel, uh, but his idea was, I'm going to take two animals and I'm going to tie their tails together and I'm going to put fire in between them. If you tied fire to one animal, they'll go burrow and run away. So they won't go into the crops. They'll try to get underground. The fire will go out because the animal is not just running saying, hey, look at this. I'm lighting things on fire. It's hurting the animal. The animal's in pain. And so what he's done is he's put two animals together so they cannot Run in unison. They cannot go burrow in where they want to be. And so they just start running madly through the crops. I think it's helpful also uh, to notice the the feat of catching 300 wild jackals or foxes. Along with his strength, we keep seeing these hints of other ability as well uh, tied to it. He obviously had a lot of speed and agility, and that's going to come up when he kills the thousand. Uh, he's able to catch up. The move to Eshkelon was 24 miles away when he kills him and comes back. And so we get an idea of, of some of the, the ability that he has, both speed and agility, also some resistance to uh, animal bites and marks. Remember, he killed the lion that leaped at him. And so we see that there's maybe just even more than strength that's here. We've highlighted the strength, but tied to this are all these other physical attributes. And then notice this as well. We kind of think he ran through a cornfield, and that was disappointing, but not devastating. Scripture makes it very clear that he made sure it ran through all of their fields. So what they'd harvested gets burned. What is still to be harvested gets burned. And then the foxes or jackals move their way into the vineyards. Talk about your grapes and into the olives, which oftentimes were planted in the same region. And this is a devastating loss for this community. This lost opportunity, this is lost potential, this is their livelihood. This is an, uh, an agricultural society, and so they are left with nothing. This is quite the punishment that's been enacted on this community. What is the, the response of the town? Well, burn the woman and her father, which ironically was what she was trying to avoid when she told the riddle. And you see that sense of poetic justice that kind of comes out. But what what's to be done to the town that murdered Samson's lost bride? Because he didn't want just a replacement woman. He didn't want the prettier sister. He wanted the lady that he married. And now she's been murdered along with her father. How does he view this? And so what you see is that Samson now doesn't leave that deed unpunished. So you trick Samson and then Samson's angry and leaves. And then Samson comes back and his bride has been given away. And Samson then destroys the crops and then they murder his father-in-law and his bride. And now Samson says, I'm going to have to be avenged. This is my wife. And so what he does is he takes on the role of the blood avenger. And I put, he goes from crops burned to deaths avenged. And if you read in the Pentateuch, there is a, a law in place that you had the opportunity, the right to avenge the death of your relative. That's why there was those cities of refuge. If you had killed someone accidentally in an honest accident, you made your way to that city in, in Old Testament culture, in, in Israelite culture, and you were protected. Well, Samson, being family, is going to avenge the murder. And so he says, I'm going to do this, and then I'll be done. And so he goes, and it says he strikes him hip and thigh. And and that is an indication of violent hand-to-hand combat. That's exactly what it means. This idea that he is engaging them, and it's not in a wrestling match. He is killing them. And so he goes in, and he says he goes after them in a violent hand-to-hand combat, hip to thigh, and a debt has been paid. And I put here, 15 tells us the cycle has begun. We can see one clear thing taking place. Right now, no one is thinking about anything but Samson. He has gone to Timnah. He has had a wedding, and then he went to Ashkelon and killed 30 people, which would have been left naked in the woods there. So in other words, something's wrong. The Philistines realize something's out of whack. In our, in our nation, in our cities. And then he comes back, and now we see that he wreaks havoc in a community. This town of Timnah has, has lost all their crops. Uh, the indication is not wrestling with 30 people, it's the idea that the community comes out to attack him, and he is violently fighting with them, hand to hand comment to the death, and he has a great victory. And Samson has stirred up the hornet's nest, and he's become the main focus. Of the Philistine horde, God is working, and I want us to see this. God is working His plan, even though Samson may be working his own agenda. Samson is still weak, morally and spiritually. We see this weakness; it, it, it literally permeates who he is. There's times when there's a bright shining through, but what we see is that God had had Samson set aside to, when I say by time, for twenty years, to prevent the Philistines from just. Suffocating the Israelites instead of taking advantage of what they had, they are now going to be fixated on Samson. And what we see as we turn into 15 is now instead of 30 guys killed randomly in a city, we see a whole town annihilated. But don't forget, the crops are burnt. There's nothing there. And 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 understand this, even though Samson's working his agenda, his retaliation on some of these was within reason. Uh, He was the blood avenger for his wife, and so he was acting within the parameters of God's law on some of his actions. I'm not saying his motives were all tied right, but his actions would have walked through. God is working his plan. Now, I want us to also learn something and just kind of keep this in mind as you walk through Samson. His anger and his decisions only exasperated the circumstances, and it always does. Everything escalates with him. Any Any attitude or disposition that has that self-centeredness, that convenience to it that's tied to his character, all we see are these tragic reactions that seem to multiply on each other. And there's a principle that runs through this as well. Self-centeredness brings tragic results, always. It's always going to unfold in this way. Well, beating down a whole Philistine town is not acceptable Israelite behavior. And let's be honest, though Samson loves being in Philistine towns, and he loves, be honest, pagan women, and he loves that life, and it seems that he's drawn to the world like a magnet. Still, he's an Israelite, and what he did cannot be permitted. And so what we're going to watch from this is this cycle of repercussions continue with the Philistine response to what I call lost pride. How dare one Israelite man wipe out a town of Philistines? Don't they know who's the boss? Don't they know who's in charge? Don't they know who leads? And so this is what happens, verse nine. Then the Philistines went up and pitched in Judah and spread themselves in Lahi. In other words, a huge army of the Philistines comes up and the men of Judah said, why are you come up against us? Haven't we been good little servants? Haven't we done what you wanted? What's going on? What's taking place? We've not broken the rules. And he goes on and they answered to bind Samson. Are we come up to do to him as he hath done? to us. And if you underline your Bible, verse 11, then 3,000 men of Judah, and just think about that number. We got to get Samson tied up. 3,000 men of Judah went to the top of the rock at Tom. And that was a region that's hard to get through. You have to go single file. If you're the Philistines, the last thing you want to do is go fight a guy hand to hand, single file, to a place where he can just take you one at a time. It's pretty simple to him. And so they're basically sending Judah to take care of their job. And Judah is willingly doing that. And so he comes and they said to Samson, knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? Don't you know who's in charge? Don't you know we serve them? And then he goes on, what is this that thou hast done unto us? And he said unto them, as they did unto me, so have I done unto them which sounds like dealing with toddlers, but that's neither here nor there. And they said unto him, We are come down to bind thee, that we may deliver thee into the hand of the Philistines. And don't miss the cowardice of Judah in this moment. Don't miss the fact, and I'll talk about it, how they're doing the enemy's bidding right now. They're they're chasing down Samson for the Philistines. And Samson said unto them, Swear unto me that you will not fall upon me yourselves. And they spake unto him, saying, No, but we will bind thee fast and deliver thee into their hand, but surely we will not kill thee. And they bound him with two new cords and brought him up from the rock. And when he came unto Lahive, the Philistines shouted against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the cores that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loosed from off his hands. And he found a new jawbone of a donkey, and put forth his hand, and took it, and slew a thousand men therewith. And Samson said, with the jawbone of, an, of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. And the word for heaps in Hebrew is the same as donkey. So what he's saying, with the jawbone of a donkey, I piled donkeys on top of donkeys. This is not the, the nicest poem, but it's it tells the story. I have slaughtered them like animals, to, with the jawbone of the same animal. With the jaw of a donkey, have I slain a thousand men? And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking, that he cast away the jawbone out of his hand and called that place Ramathlehi. And I want us to recognize that there's a significant army from the Philistines coming to gather Samson and show him who is boss. And just so you know how they show him who is boss, later in the story when they poke his eyes out, they do that with needle at a time. They torture him when they take his eyes. They plan on torturing him to death if they can get him. And they do this and they come against Israel. You need to get Samson? We'll never find him. We'll just go against the nation that's there, and it makes the men of Judah wonder what they've done to anger the big boss. And I want us to see the disposition of Israel right now. They are subjected and they are not seeing a mighty God. They see mighty Philistines. And I want you to see why we need Samson for 20 years. Because you might wonder, why not just use Samson to gain the victory? Because the men of Judah and the men of Israel were not Prepared to trust God enough to do that. Samson gets a different task because they're too scared to fight. They find out what Samson's done and they do the disappointing thing and join the enemy cause. 3,000 of them go to solve the immediate problem. And if you remember what Samson did with his wife when she nagged him and nagged him and nagged him, and he finally said, I'm sick of her nagging me. Let me take the convenient answer. And that's exactly what Judah does here. What's the most immediate solution to your problem? Well, give him Samson and the Philistines leave. What would have been the long-term solution to your problem? Join Samson and annihilate the Philistines. But they don't have the heart to do that. They don't have the worship to do that. I'm sure it was disappointing to Samson to have his own countrymen come up and say, hey, we need to get you to the enemy. We're gonna tie you up. However, he responds in a way that keeps them from needing to take action of endangering them at all. And I want you to see, we pick on Samson a lot. This whole story, this whole unfolding that takes place shows him to be God's servant. He actually functions in a very servant-like manner because he shows love for God's people. By being bound by them, making sure they don't attack him, he's taking care and protection of them. Why does he not want them to try to kill him? Is he afraid of 3,000 men of Judah? No. He doesn't want to kill his own countrymen. He doesn't want them to attack and he has to retaliate. He doesn't want to have to fight for his life. He allows himself to be tied up Do new ropes make a difference? Well, we know that with Delilah, they try new ropes, and they don't make a bit of difference. He knows that, but he he wants to protect them and care for them. They're doing the enemy's bidding. They're showing no faith in God. They're doing what is convenient for the moment, yet he shows them grace and mercy and kindness as a true servant of the Lord. There aren't many redeeming features in Samson, but this is one of them. Here is a man who loved his people. And he served his people. That's why he, he was a judge. He considered that guy that judged the people there. And so he's bound with the new ropes. He's brought to the Philistine host, which as I'm, I'm hoping you pick up would have been quite a few more than 3,000 in Judah. And That host, when they see him, starts shouting. And when they shout, you'll see that even when they're celebrating him in their temple of Dagon, when they bring him out blind and weak, they start praising their God. Our God has brought a victory. Our God. And you just imagine this huge military host screaming to their God and how victorious their God has made them. And then as he showed love to God's people, he shows God's enemies the spirit of the Lord. And it says the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. He gets a new jawbone, by the way, because it's not going to break. It's not going to be brittle. And he kills a thousand soldiers piling them in heaps as he catches them. And we oftentimes envision this host of Philistines coming out and each one standing in the circle with Samson as he kills one and then he kills the next and he kills the next. It's not how it unfolded. They come against him and sudden utter fear overtakes them. They're fleeing and he's chasing them down and catching group after group and piling up the bodies up to a thousand soldiers. And again, what you're seeing is speed and agility coupled with his strength. The national pride of the Philistines ends up positioning them for a degrading defeat at the hands of God's servant. And I want you to see the escalation from a wedding in the town of Timnah to destroying a whole community's economic sustenance and pretty much wiping out the town from a man-fighting standpoint to now The host of the Philistines coming up and saying, we've got an Israelite problem and we're going to get an army that's going to go attack them because how dare Israelites attack us. And now that elite fighting force that's been called up, not from Timnah, but from all the host of Philistines has just run like cowards from one man as he kills a thousand of them and piles them up. God has positioned the Philistines to face the defeat and face the fear that's there but I want us to highlight what Israel has done. Isn't it a sad display by Israel? If you think about that, they do nothing but seemingly want to be subjected in the face of amazing victory. What action does the Israelites take after this victory? Nothing, no action. They do nothing. This Philistine host that's walked up to them, threatened them, sent 3,000 men of themselves to go get Samson, who they've bound and brought to them, and then they watch them flee, just running away, and Samson fights and kills 1,000? Samson alone? Where are, these, where are these soldiers at? They're doing nothing. God's people siding with God's enemies in their endeavors, and then not moving when God's servant is granted victory. And I want us to see something in that that happens today. Maybe you're not actively against God's servants, but too often we seem to be rooting for the enemy. And we see that in these stories, right? We saw that with Jephthah and Ephraim. There's victory. And what what does Ephraim do? Come alongside and say, we're going to burn your house down. We're going to kill you. What does Judah do in the face of God's amazing, miraculous victory? Nothing. All they've done in this whole story so far is go do the bidding of the enemy. Samson calls the victory. Oh, we can't have that. We want to live in subjection. We want to be under the world. We don't trust God to do what God said he would do. Thus, 20 years of God sending a judge who's going to balance, who's going to focus their energy so they cannot oppress Israel beyond belief. Now, I want you to take that disengaged mindset of Israel, this unbelieving mindset, and I want to contrast that behavior with that of our loving, heavenly Father. I want you to look at verses 18 and 19. Samson's had a huge victory, and it says he was sore athirst. thirst. <coughs> Notice no one's offering him a drink of water either. And called on the Lord and said, thou hast given this great deliverance in the hand of thy servant. And now shall I die for thirst and fall into the hand of of the uncircumcised, but God clave in hollow place that was in the jaw, and this is not in the jawbone, uh, this is in the, the name of that place, Lahi, was shaped like a jawbone. So in that region he opens up water, and there came water thereout, and when he had drunk his spirit came again and he revived, wherefore he called the name thereof En Hakor which is in Lahi unto this day. And notice that spirit is not capitalized. This is not God's spirit came back to him, but his spirit, like he is revived as a human being. Here we get a glimpse of his humanity. He needs water and he's at the cusp of collapse. He has divine strength, but here he's not brought low, but in a sense is reminded that he's not a God. He, he, he doesn't have this in and of himself, but what do we see that God does? miraculously brings water to him, completely reviving him. And it's a spring, by the way, that keeps flowing just to remind Israel of what God does. There's no spring there. And now there's a spring. A thousand enemy are killed. The, the, the Philistines are scurrying back down south. Samson leaves the place and there's water springing up and it stays there till this day, till the writing of Judges. Spring, that means the spring of the caller. See, Israel has deserted Samson, but God has not. God lovingly cares for Samson and leaves a reminder that he forever remains the loving, providing heavenly father. Don't miss that in Samson's story. At the end of his life, we see again God coming through a fulfilling heavenly father. In other words, God never deserts his children. Now we go on, the chapter closes saying this, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistine 20 years Uh, This is the beginning of his rule. This is at the, the, he's probably in his early 20s right now. And it says he's going to rule for 20 years, which typically is a phrase that is used when we're done the story of a judge. We finish the story of the judge, he ruled this long, we move on to the next one. Uh, But this is not uh, a statement that ends the story. We're going to see it repeated at the end of the the next chapter. Uh, But the exploits of Samson, his displays of moral and spiritual weakness, the victories God gives him uh, are not over because now the focus is going to shift further into his life. So I want you to envision this. The battle of Ephed took place where uh, Israel is defeated by the Philistines. They lose the ark. And now Samson is going to judge for 20 years. This is at the beginning of that. Fast forward, as we move to what I call a list of failures, chapter 13, we have shifted into further into his life towards the end of his life. So if he's in his early 20s now, he's in his late 30s, early 40s, as we're walking into what take place in chapter 16. Uh, This chapter is the most disappointing of the chapters about Samson, because here we see the depths of his weakness. Uh, We find that all of his exploits and sin struggles are still used by God, to accomplish his purpose, to keep the the Philistines stunned, to keep the oppression off of all of Israel. Yet tragically, due to his sin, all of it unfolds in the midst of Samson's colossal downfall. The first exploit finds Samson in the Philistine city of Gaza where he again allows his eyes, what pleased him in the moment, to dictate his actions. And we find him constantly in the web of the world. He's constantly in their territory. He's in Timnah, which is their town. He's in Gaza, which is their city. He's Sorek, The Valley of Sorek is right on the border, but it's Philistine when he gets to Delilah. He is always pursuing the world. And we find him now with a very crass I'm going to do what pleases me, and we encounter his failure of foolish lust. Look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Then went Samson to Gaza, and saw there a harlot, and went in unto her. And it was told the Gazites, saying, Samson is come hither. In other words, he didn't blow a trumpet and say, here's Samson, I'm in in your town. He just went into the city, wove his way in. and, And again, it's revealed to them that he's there. And they compassed him in and laid wait for him all night in the gate of the city, and were quiet all the night, saying, "In the morning, when it is day, we shall kill him." And Samson lay till midnight, and arose at midnight, and took the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and went away with them, bar and all, and put them upon his shoulders and carried them up to the top of a hill that is before Hebron. I don't know how they learned that he was there; uh, God's providence uh, making it known. But they planned on making the most of it. Now they've learned something. This is a walled city. The gates are shut. They're not trying to hunt for him in this, in this city at all. They're just saying, we know he's here. There's only one way out. We're just going to watch the way out really closely, and we're going to kill him from ambush. They, they've learned enough that they don't need to confront him and say, I'm going to kill you, Samson, because everyone dies that does that. And so they're going to come and ambush him, uh, knowing again that he's going to have to leave through the main gate. So they're either right on the outside, right on the inside, there they sit. And God is going to take this situation, this despicable situation that Samson's put himself in, and he's going to use this to increase Samson's image in the eyes of the Philistines. Uh, Samson's going to grow in their mind to the point where they're going to view him like a mythological God. They're viewing him as not human uh, anymore. And we'll see that in, in the encounter with Delilah. So there's a group of people now waiting to take action. Guards are posted. Everyone else is sleeping. And by the way, when you're at the gates of the city uh, where the guards will be posted, there's, there's multiple groups of guards that would watch the gates of the city. Uh, the city gates were a part of the pride of a city. Uh, if you have a walled city, your weakest point is your entry point. So the stronger your gate is, the stronger your city is. This is civic pride at its peak. Suddenly, the gates that they're watching, gates that don't open till the morning, gates that they're prepared to open and then kill Samson when he comes through, are lifted up. Two gates, two posts, a minimum of 12 feet across, based on archaeological digging of other Philistine cities. They would have been solid wood, coated in metal, and he rips the gates up. The gates and the two posts that hold them picks them up and climbs a hill going towards Hebron. Hebron is pretty far away. It's not not a jog away. Uh, Most indications are that he's walking toward Hebron, and, and they would understand direction. That's where his base of operation was. And he places the gates on top of a hill. And I want you to imagine how that feels if you're part of Gaza, where your gates define who you are. And you look out, and a guy has carried those gates and put them on a hill going towards his city, not all the way to his city. He wants them to see the gates and recognize that they have zero strength. He stomped the pride of Gaza into the dust and then leaves that image of their defeat sitting on a hill that they can watch. Notice something, though. Ripping gates out of the dirt and out of the, uh, locked in is not a quiet thing. I've never seen someone remove a post and do it quietly. Everyone knew what was taking place. Notice what doesn't happen to him. No one throws a spear in his back. No one shoots an arrow at him. No one ambushes him. And I want us to recognize the reality of the circumstance that there's now this protective shell that God's given them, that that they're so fearful of him, they are not going to engage with him when he has his powers. And that's why you see this psychological war that God's placed on them where they cannot engage him at all. But sadly, Samson still doesn't learn from the traps and warnings. Samson's affinity for pagan women and I'm going to say for the pagan world is so much that he's drawn into it yet again. He's drawn by his eyes and his wants and this overwhelming temptation to be in the world. And so his life and ministry draw to a close with a fatal love. And that's verses four through six. We'll look at it. Here we come to the famous story of Delilah. And I want to say up front, uh, too many people make her into some villain She's a Philistine woman who was pragmatically helping her nation and going to get filthy rich. No one's going to fault her. Uh, We don't fault Samson enough. The man who knew the true God, who didn't witness to her at all and didn't make that a priority. And so let's make sure the blame rests where it should. I'm not making her into a good person. I'm just saying from her perspective, she's done right by her people. So it goes on, And it came to pass afterward that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and said unto her, Entice him, and see wherein his great strength lieth, and by what means we may prevail against him, that we may bind him to afflict him. Notice what they want to do. We want to torture him. And we will give thee, every one of us, 1,100 pieces of silver. And Delilah said to Samson, tell me, I pray thee, wherein thy great strength lieth, and wherewith thou mightest be bound to afflict thee. Now, just to make her not too good, she is taking someone who loves her and who she's committed to, to twist and turn and use it to her advantage. I want you to realize, though, that there's been a change that's taken place. Samson seems untouchable to them. He now, in their eyes, is is someone beyond their ability in the sense of godlike. And I've said that multiple times because we need to understand how they feel about him. And that's why their approach changes. They're now looking to find out the source of his strength so that they can undo that and conquer him. They recognize that he's unconquerable how he is. There is no soldier they have. There's no number of men they have. There's nothing they can do. And so, as Samson's closing act comes into view, we find that God has accomplished his purpose despite Samson's sin. Don't miss this phrase, the lords of the Philistines. That's every leader of the five major cities of the Philistines Instead of saying, let's get together and plan how we're going to invade Israel and use all that land to our advantage and how we're going to make them slaves to us and make them farm for us and how we're going to come in and exploit them for everything they have. These individuals are getting together and meeting some lady who Samson loves and saying, how can we figure out his power. And God's purpose through this whole time was to take the focus of the Philistines from what we can do with all of Israel to how do we get rid of this guy. And right now, you see that God has accomplished everything he wanted to. He's fulfilled his purpose, the, the greater purpose that he has there. And so they come and bribe the woman Samson is in love with to seduce him and find out his strength. Don't miss the implication that's here. They know that he loves Delilah. They know he visits Delilah. They know all these things. Why aren't they attacking him? Again, they cannot deal with this. He is beyond them. He's the untouchable. The fear is there. And so they offer her 1,100 shekels each. And it's hard to imagine how much money is that. So I was doing some research. One person said it's 550 times the yearly wage for her. So from a pagan standpoint, it's enough money for her to live on and to carry her through the afterlife. In our vernacular, it made her a millionaire multiple multiple times over. So the money would have been in, in, in their economy, and it's not the same equivalent, but in its function would have been like having $14 million today. So you suddenly are going to get $14 million. And you can see why it's tempting to get rid of one guy for $14 million. You know, that's a tough, that's not a tough change out. And you're helping your nation to boot. So without hesitation, it seems, she quickly begins to ask about his strength. And we find that we have a very dangerous game played. And due to time, I'm just going to kind of work through this. What happens here is she says, what is the, the the meaning of your strength? And he begins by saying, uh, verses seven through fourteen. Uh, he begins with the idea of new bowstrings, wet bowstrings, which. Um grossly enough come from the intestines of an animal so it's it's, it's not not pleasant and she's going to get these new bowstrings and she's going to tie them on because when it dries it'd be impossible to untie and of course she ties them up which he obviously is going to know because they're on him and then says the Philistines are upon you and what takes place uh, a group is waiting in an inner room they don't come out they've learned their lesson and he breaks the bowstrings and it's over. And then she obviously says, what are you doing? How can you make me look so? You lied to me. You don't love me. She whines again. He says, new ropes. He breaks the ropes. And then she says, tell me the truth. And he says, well, if you weave my hair into a loom, I'll be weak as someone else. And you see how we're creeping closer to the truth. You see his weakness triggering down. You see that he's a fool because anyone should realize, oh, she tied me up with the thing that's supposed to make me weak. Well, you should know better at this point. This game frustrates Delilah. She's looking like the fool to her benefactors, and the potential lifetime of gains is slipping away. So she turns up the temperature. 15 and 16, she says, How canst thou say, I love thee, when thine heart is not with me? Thou hast mocked me these three times, and hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words, and urged him, so that his soul was vexed unto death. Well, that's a bit of an emotional exaggeration, right? Telling you how he felt. But it goes all the way back to that first wife 20 years prior where she bugged him about the riddle, and he's like, I'm so sick of this, I want to answer And he's bothered by what she says. And we know what often happens when this kind of pressure comes. Add that, his tendency to do what is currently convenient. Add to this, his love that's now been questioned. And what does Samson decide to do? He bypasses any sense of discernment, any hint of logic, and bears his soul to her. And what we find is that a secret is shared. He tells her, it says in verse 17, that he told her all his heart. And then he shares about being a Nazarite from his mother's womb. And then he talks about his strength will go out if my head is shaved. And, And one of the things we get in our mind is that the hair had some kind of miraculous power, which it did not. And then she gets him to fall asleep, 19, and she has someone come in and shave his head off, the seven locks of his head. And it says in 19, and she began to afflict him and his strength went from him. And you see this torturing that's taking place while he's sleeping. And she said, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he woke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. Now, if you've had hair on your head that's grown your whole lifetime and it's shaved off, pretty sure you know it's gone. But he woke up with the presumption that God will still give him the strength. And this is a phrase that if you underline your Bible, you should underline it. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. Or to put it in normal English, he didn't know that God had left him. He didn't know that God had departed from him. And that's important that he didn't know it. And then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes. And as I mentioned earlier, that wasn't just gouging him out with one fell sloop. It was a torturous process of burning his eyes out. Uh, in a horrific way and brought him down to Gaza, interestingly enough, the place where he had demoralized them with the gates and bound him with fetters of brass, and he did grind in the prison house. He did slave work, howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven, which again blows my mind. How dumb are the Philistines? If you think the power's in his hair, why would you let his hair grow? But apparently not the smartest people. Um, He does the convenient, doesn't he? He does the convenient and utterly ridiculous to please a temporal relationship and spurn an eternal one. And I want us to get some truth from that. How often will we do something ridiculous to keep a friend, to grow a relationship, to have a certain component of life, and literally turn our back on the eternal relationship that we have? to spurn what God has done, what he's bought us back from, who he is to get this cheap trinket of love that's not even real, which results in what I call the lost game. She wins. She learns the portion of truth about a strength. He doesn't tell the real source. The real source is God, coming directly from God. He shares the symbol of it. But when he shared that symbol, he revealed his priority she came before God. Temporal life came before God, and it showed how presumptuous he was of God. God will always send me strength. I take God's strength for granted. This is, it's mine. He's he's a presumptuous man. His own ministry is filled with that. She has his head shaved, stealing the symbol of his being set apart. And while sleeping, it's noted, she afflicted him She acted upon his foolish sharing and removed the physical depiction of his being God's man. But the loss of the hair was only symbolic of the real loss, because as we'll see, there is a lost gift here. His strength had went from him. And I I said it while reading it, I put in my notes key, don't miss the most tragic of statements regarding the loss, and actually don't miss the most tragic statement of Samson's life. He did not know that the Lord had left him. And I put it as a note here because it sums up his life. The presumption is there, and that's what presumption is, right? We presume that this is always going to be this way. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be perfect. God has to do. God must give me. And he didn't even know that the Lord had left him, that God had removed that gift from him. How much hardness to sin and self-centeredness is required to not notice the departure of the Lord. Everyone fixates on the strength leaving, and we miss this reality of who we are because the strength was divine. It's God's gift to him. The reality for us is this. What in the world has taken place in his life that he doesn't notice that it's gone? And obviously, you know where I'm leading to, right? and that's the cause or a call to think a second. Are we where Samson is in our Christian lives? Would it describe us? And and I I challenge you, don't gloss over this phrase. And the story of Samson, I know, is Delilah and killing people with with jawbones and being super strong. And we emphasize all these things, but but the, the core lesson of his life what he tells us is the fact that he got so hardened and so consumed in self that he didn't know when God's giftedness had left him. It was gone. Mark it in your Bible. Return to it. Keep that warning constantly fresh. How hard do you have to be to sin and how consumed with self for you to miss the departure of the Lord? But graciously, utter defeat and spiritual desolation does not mark the end of Samson. And this is what I want us to see. I did it with the other one where we see Israel abandons him and he's fighting all alone. And then we see a loving heavenly father come in and cause water to come out of a stone and leave that there as a marker of his presence and his love and his care. His life doesn't end with his eyes poked out, grinding grain until he keels over. And mind you, he's in his late 30s, early 40s. He has a few years to grind grain. Instead, his life closes with the beautiful picture of our fulfilling Heavenly Father. The never-ending love of the never-failing, only true God. I'm going to walk through this text briefly. I'm just going to kind of share what it says. Basically, the lords of the Philistines, that same group, they gather together and they make a huge sacrifice, a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God, and rejoice, for they said, Our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, For they said, our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy and destroyer of our company, which slew many of us. And so they were all celebrating and happy. And you got to envision this temple or this gathering place. On the bottom underneath, there's a whole roof where people gathered. So the 3,000 on the top are just more or less commoners leaning in and seeing what's taking place in, let's say, a a center circle. Underneath is all the lords of the Philistines, and they're they're there. This whole structure is built on columns that go around. The way they've designed it is that the two center columns are critical. If they go, everything kind of crumbles down. And so you see Samson come here, and he's made to be a mockery. They're laughing at him. He's the joke. They're afflicting him. They're torturing him. He gets put, he said he's made sport of, he asks God after he's put in between the pillars, he says, God, I pray thee, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. He asks, give me strength and strengthen me one more time. And I want you to see a little bit about his life because he's not presuming now anymore, is he? He's going to God and saying, I'd like it one more time. And he says, I'd rather die Uh, with the Philistines, and he uses all his might, and he he knocks the whole thing down. And it says he slew more at his death than he did during his life. And then his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtual in the burial place of Manoah, his father. And he judged Israel 20 years. And I just want you to see something there. Uh, What seems utterly tragic, you recognize they've taken his eyes out He's he's broken in the sense of what would be accomplished in that society uh, with that uh, handicap that's put in front of him. And throughout Samson's life, and specifically noted at the beginning and now at the end, we see God lovingly caring for him and graciously fulfilling his ministry until the end. This guy was stricken with sin. He doesn't even know when God is left in the sense of his enabling. He's engaged in everything you wouldn't want someone to engage in. And I want you to notice something about him. He is never abandoned by God. He's not left on the waste pile. What better example would we take for that, right? If we had Samson, we're like, well, look what happens when you don't do what I tell you. You end up imprisoned and, and grinding grain. What does God do? He grants him the fulfillment of his ministry. Don't miss who's there, the lords of the Philistines. In less than five years, Samuel's going to lead them in a defeat against the Philistines, but their leaders most likely died in this, this whole party. So there's some random thing. All of them are there. And Samson life is a tragic story of a divine potential that is blended with poisonous sin. Yet through it all, we're given real warning and real assurance And I want to just kind of pull two street-level applications before we close and then partake of communion uh, together. One, we find our God to be ever-loving and never-failing. Despite what Samson did with his miraculous giftedness, and he misused it, God both accomplished his overall purpose, regardless of the downfall, and also continued to love and use his severely flawed servant. There is assurance in that and knowing God's characteristics, knowing the characteristics of our Lord and Savior. Now, it's not an excuse. Please don't manipulate God's word and use this as an excuse to be flawed, to be a Samson. It's not a call to be Samson, but instead it's an assurance that despite actions that replicate him, our Lord remains ever true to his word and his love for his own. Your Savior never abandons you. He never forsakes you. And then two, we find the crippling danger and effect of convenience and convenient action. Samson followed his eyes, his passion, his life, and it ended in a a, a tragic hero story. Imagine for a second what his life could have looked like if he would have done what God wanted and fulfilled God's purpose and lived a godly life instead of getting lost in the midst of his self-centered choices. God's will was still accomplished, but Samson lost the blessing of a godly life. And I wrote here, don't forfeit eternal and temporal blessing on the altar of convenience and self. Samson is an amazingly gifted servant of God. We see his love for his people come out in the story with uh, the killing of the thousand men, which we get that thousand in our mind and miss the 15,000 that might have been there coming to kill him. Uh, we see that care that's there, uh, but we see a world that kept on pulling him in and he never broke that. And there's so many tie-in challenges that work there. Uh, Don't let the world get a grip on your life. Don't be pulled in by that. Don't be drawn in constantly to that. Don't forfeit eternal and temporal blessing on the altar of convenience and self. Let's learn the lesson Samson has sadly taught us.